You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. What's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run on the Revelations Radio Network. It's good to be here with you again today. My name is Chris. So let's just jump right in. Today we're going to be playing uh, two chapters from my upcoming book, The Islamic Antichrist Debunked. These are the chapters that deal with Islamic eschatology. Now we've talked a little bit about this on this show before. I put out a podcast not too long ago detailing this information, but it was kind of a uh, stream of consciousness sort of uh, podcast. This is going to be putting all that information, plus a lot more information that I discovered uh, in a clear, concise way. Um, this is a subject that really got me interested in, uh, in 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 making this into an entire book, although this section about Islamic eschatology is really only uh, one part of that book. Uh, however, it is really interesting, and I think it shows for the first time at least in the mainstream, the true origins of Islamic eschatology. And I do hope that it helps to uh, shed new light on the kinds of things that uh, those promoting the Islamic Antichrist theory say. I hope to have all this information out in book form probably in a month, hopefully less than a month, but we'll see how it goes. Um, in the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy two chapters from the upcoming book, Islamic Antichrist Debunked. Part 2, Chapter 11, Islamic Eschatology The end times or eschatological beliefs in Islam play a major role in the promotion of the Islamic Antichrist theory. In fact, Joel Richardson's first book, Antichrist, Islam's Awaited Messiah, later republished as Islamic Antichrist, was entirely about Islamic eschatology. That book attempts to prove that the Antichrist will be Islamic by comparing Islamic beliefs about the last days to Christian beliefs. The thesis of Richardson's Islamic Antichrist book is, in short, that Islamic eschatological beliefs are preparing the Muslim world to accept the Antichrist and false prophet. We will discuss this thesis in much more detail later, but for now I only want to point out that Islamic Antichrist theorists such as Joel Richardson put a particular emphasis on Islamic eschatological beliefs when trying to convince people of their theory. General Overview of Islamic Eschatology before we discuss what Joel Richardson and others claim about the end times beliefs of Islam, I will first offer a brief overview of the subject of eschatology in Islam to provide some context for the rest of this chapter. There are some significant differences of opinions about the end times among Sunni and Shiite Muslims. However, both sects do share many common beliefs as well. I will attempt to limit this overview to only those ideas that are common to both groups. In Islam, the Day of Judgment or the Day of Resurrection is preceded by several signs. These signs are categorized into two groups by Islamic scholars, the minor signs and the major signs. Many of the minor signs are very general. For example, a few minor signs include, quote, an increase in killing and much wine is drunk. It is generally believed by Muslims that some of the minor signs have already happened, while others have either not yet occurred or have begun but not yet concluded. 
Not many of the minor signs are used to support the Islamic Antichrist theory and thus will be largely ignored in this book. The major signs are much more important for this study as they basically give an outline of the major events the average Muslim expects to happen as the day of resurrection approaches. Most Islamic scholars agree that none of the major signs have happened yet. I will list a few of the most relevant major signs in chronological order. Number one, the emergence of the Mahdi. The Mahdi is said to unite the Muslim world to fight several battles, including the conquest of Constantinople. He shares the wealth he acquires through conquest with the people. He rules the world for five, seven, eight, nine, or nineteen years, Islamic sources differ, before Isa returns. Number two, the appearance of the Dajjal. The Mashit ad-Dajjal, literally the false messiah, will appear after the battle of Constantinople. He will be blind in one eye, and his other eye will be deformed. He will travel the entire world deceiving people. He will gather many followers, mostly Jews and women, and his powers of persuasion are said to be almost irresistible. He will draw the Mahdi's armies to fight him in battle, though it will actually be Isa, the Muslim Jesus, who kills him. Number three, the return of Isa. Isa, who Muslims believe to be a prophet but not God, will return just as the Mahdi's armies are preparing to battle the Dajjal's armies. Isa will kill the Dajjal and all the Dajjal's followers and help to convert many people to Islam. After this, Isa will rule over a supernaturally restored earth until he dies 40 years later. Number 4. Yahud and Mahud, the Gog-Magog War Two tribes of vicious beings, which had been imprisoned by Dhul Karnan, will break out. They will ravage the earth, drink all the water of Lake Tiberias, and kill all believers in their way. They will kill so many people that even Isa has to flee, though later Isa prays to Allah who sends destruction on Gog Magog. There are many more major signs, but these four are relevant to the Islamic Antichrist theory and thus will be my primary focus. Islamic Antichrist theorist claims about Islamic eschatology. The basic idea proposed by those holding to the Islamic Antichrist theory is that the events described above will actually come to pass more or less like Islamic people expect them to. They would, however, say that the Mahdi in Islamic tradition will actually be the Antichrist, that Isa, the Muslim Jesus, will be the false prophet, and that the Dajjal, the Islamic version of the Antichrist, is actually the real Jesus. This line of thinking relies on listing a number of similarities between the prominent eschatological figures in Islamic and Christian traditions. For example, in the case of the Mahdi, Richardson suggests that both the Mahdi and the Antichrist are to be world, political, and religious leaders who kill Christians and Jews. In the case of Isa and the false prophet, Richardson points out that Isa and the Mahdi are kind of a team in the end times, in the same way the Antichrist and false prophet are said to be. He suggests that Isa is said to have many of the same roles as the false prophet, and thus are the same people. In the case of the Dajjal, Richardson points out that the Dajjal will most likely claim to be the Jewish Messiah, and should therefore be seen as the return of the real Jesus, who is, of course, the Messiah to the Jews. This is a very incomplete overview of the similarities of these figures suggested by Richardson. I will offer a much more in-depth look at his claims later in this chapter, as I critique his theory. The Origins of Islamic Eschatology and Why It Matters to fully understand the problems with the Islamic Antichrist proponents' views about Islamic eschatology, 
it is necessary to understand how Islamic traditions about the end times came about in the first place. This is partly because there seems to be some acceptance on the part of Islamic Antichrist theorists that the end times events in Islamic tradition are going to occur more or less like Muslims say they will, with only minor changes. I feel that they give these Islamic prophecies far too much credibility. The idea that the false prophet of Revelation 13 will claim to be the Islamic version of Jesus and force everyone to be a Muslim is certainly not an explicit teaching about the false prophet in the Bible. The theorists look at the prophecies about Isa in Islamic tradition and assume they are demonically inspired prophecies that have something to tell us about how the end times will play out. They then force the idea of the false prophet being a Muslim Jesus into Revelation 13. Understanding the history of Islamic eschatology demystifies it completely. Hopefully once you see how Muslims have come to believe what they do about the end times, you will understand that these Islamic prophecies have absolutely nothing to teach us about how the last days will actually play out, and assuming they do provide some kind of guideline can only lead to error. An Overview most of the ideas about Islamic end times beliefs do not come from the Quran, the central text in Islam, but from the Hadiths, a word that means tradition. The Hadiths are a collection of sayings attributed to Muhammad, compiled by his followers over the hundreds of years after his death in AD 632. Even within Islam, many of these Hadiths are considered spurious. By the 9th century, the number of these sayings had grown exponentially to about 60,000, some of them clearly contradicting each other. Islamic scholars had to decide which ones were authentic and which ones had been invented for political or theological purposes. It's important to note that these ideas about the end times in Islam arose at least 600 years after the book of Revelation was written. Most of them came about much later than that. The people who constructed Islamic eschatology, therefore, were very aware of Christian and Jewish views about the end times, and, as we will see, liberally borrowed from them. How Islamic Eschatology Developed There are two main ways that Islamic end times beliefs came to be. The first way, which is the most common, is by borrowing from the Bible itself. Since Islam claims to accept both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible as true, they also accept the end times views expressed in the Bible as true. For example, Muslims believe in the resurrection of the dead, the return of Jesus to reign on earth, the Antichrist, the Gog-Magog war, and many other Christian doctrines about the end times. However, since Muslims also believe that Christians and Jews have corrupted the Bible, they feel this gives them a license to rewrite certain aspects of the Bible to make Islam out to be the victorious religion in the end times. This results in hadiths that on their face are obviously taken from the Bible, but include substantive changes that are necessary to make Islam out to be the true religion. For example, the following hadith describes what the world will look like when Isa, the Muslim Jesus, returns to rule the world. Quote, Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus son of Mary, will be a just judge and a ruler among Umam. Grudges and mutual hatred will disappear, and the venom of every venomous creature will be removed, so that a baby boy will put his hand in the mouth of a snake, and it will not harm him. A baby girl will make a lion run away, and it will not harm her. And the wolf will be among the sheep, like their sheepdog. 
the earth will be filled with peace, just as a vessel is filled with water. The people will be united, and none will be worshipped except Allah. War will cease, and Quraysh will no longer be in power. The earth will be like a silver platter, with its vegetation growing as it did in the time of Adam, until a group of people will gather around one bunch of grapes, and it will suffice them, and a group will gather around a single pomegranate, and it will suffice them. An ox will be sold for such as such amount of money, and a horse will be sold for a few dirhams. An astute student of the Bible will notice several commonalities with the description of the earth when Esau returns and the description of the Messianic age in the book of Isaiah. For example, children playing with snakes in Isaiah 11, 8-9, which says, The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Also, wolves and lambs coexisting, Isaiah 11:6, which says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. In the Hadith quoted, we see many other commonalities with the descriptions of the Messianic age in the Bible, such as descriptions of peace and abundance of materials. It is clear, at least in part, this hadith is based on the descriptions of the Messianic age in the Bible. Highlighting the differences in these two versions is also important for our study. For example, we see in the hadith above that Allah is the God the world worships during this time. This is an example of the aforementioned insertion of Islamic doctrine into biblical concepts to make Islam look like the ultimate victor. This particular hadith also inserts the idea that the Quraysh will no longer be in power. The Quraysh were a powerful merchant tribe that controlled Mecca and its Kaaba during the time this hadith was written. They caused various problems for Muhammad and his followers, resulting in many conflicts and wars. Here we see that the hadith writers were also prone to adding ideas from their current political circumstances to their eschatological doctrines. One way to show how much Islamic eschatology is based on the New Testament is by listing a few Islamic doctrines concerning Isa and comparing them to Christian eschatological beliefs concerning Jesus. For example, Muslims believe the following things about Isa. Number one, he was born of the Virgin Mary. Number two, he was a prophet. Number three, he performed many miracles. Number four, he ascended into heaven. Number five, he is coming back in the last days. Number six, he will destroy the Antichrist. Number seven, he will destroy the wicked people on earth. Number eight, he will rule the world with justice and peace in a restored earth. The aspects of Isa that differ from the Christian understanding of Jesus are all related to maintaining Islamic doctrine concerning Isa. For example, instead of having Jesus return as a champion of Christianity, as he does in the Bible, they made him return as a champion of Islam and antagonistic towards Christians. This doesn't mean that we should actually expect a false Jesus to come back as a champion of Islam. It is simply the typical way Muslims use the Bible for their own ends. They read the Bible and switch the religions in view to make Islam look good. This tactic can be seen in the Islamic version of the story of Abraham almost sacrificing his son Isaac in Genesis 22. In the Islamic version of this story, they switch Isaac with Ishmael, since Ishmael is supposedly the progenitor of the Muslim people. 
This is a typical example of how Islamic doctrine is based on the Bible, yet liberally altered in order to glorify Islam over Judaism and Christianity. So the first way that Islamic eschatology developed is by Hadith writers looking at what the Bible said about the end times and changing certain details to make Islam appear to be victorious in the end times. This of course required them to make the heroes all Muslim and the bad guys Jews and Christians. There is nothing about this process that should make us think their version of the end times, where they differ from the Bible, is going to come to pass any more than we should expect Mormon or Jehovah's Witness versions of the end times to come to pass. Extra-Biblical Texts One of the more fascinating research projects I've undertaken while writing this book is the second way Islamic eschatology developed, which is by borrowing early Christian beliefs about the end times found in extra-biblical sources. There are many aspects about Islamic eschatology that are completely foreign to the Bible, and I've often wondered if the writers of the Hadiths were simply coming up with these new ideas about the end times out of thin air. However, after examining in detail the early apocalyptic writings of Christians, especially those written in Syria, I was astounded to see that Islamic writers of the Hadiths seemed to be borrowing huge amounts of information from these spurious Christian sources. Then, much like in the case of their borrowing from the Bible, they changed small details to make these extra-biblical writings compatible with Islamic doctrine. Apocalyptic Pseudepigrapha The primary texts used to fill the gaps of Islamic eschatology are the apocalyptic pseudepigraphal writings of the early Christian church. The word pseudepigrapha means false name and refers to texts that are falsely attributed to other people, usually biblical apostles or prophets. For example, many people have heard of the Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. These are examples of pseudepigraphal writings. In addition to being falsely attributed to ancient writers, apocalyptic pseudepigraphal writings were written in an apocalyptic style, like the Book of Revelation. Some examples of apocalyptic pseudepigraphal writings are the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius, the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Ephraim, the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Barak, as well as many others. Apocalyptic pseudepigraphal writings were partially based on the events described in the book of Revelation, but they often added new details, events, and characters which are not found in the Bible. Usually these additions pertain to the current political circumstances at the time they were written. These writings became extremely popular in early Christianity, and often the new details about the end times that they offered were considered as authoritative as the biblical writings. The acceptance of these forgeries was due, in part, to a lack of biblical literacy at the time, as well as an inability to accurately date documents. It wasn't until the late Middle Ages that these spurious writings were widely understood to be fakes. As a result, the Islamic writers of the Hadiths, who were writing at a time when these spurious Christian documents were widely accepted as true, incorporated many elements from these apocalyptic pseudepigraphal writings into their hadiths while making various changes to suit Islamic doctrines. Examples of Islamic borrowing from the pseudepigrapha. One of the more obvious examples of Islamic writers borrowing from Christian pseudepigraphal writings is the Islamic version of the Gog-Magog War. The following is a summary of the hadiths concerning the Gog-Magog War from an influential Islamic scholar named Imam Ibn Kathir who wrote in the 1300s in Syria. This is also the standard understanding of the Gog-Magog War among Muslims today.
It says, quote, At the time of Abraham, there was a king called Dul Karnon. He performed Tawaf around the Kaaba with Abraham when he first built it. He believed and followed him. Dul Karnon was a good man and a great king. Allah gave him great power, and he ruled the east and west. He held sway over all kings and countries, and traveled far and wide in both east and west. He traveled eastwards until he reached a pass between two mountains, through which people were coming out. They did not understand anything because they were so isolated. They were Gog and Magog. They were spreading corruption through the earth and harming the people. So the people sought help from Dulkarnon. They asked him to build a barrier between them and Gog and Magog. He asked them to help build it. So together they built a barrier by mixing iron, copper, and tar. Thus Dulkarnon restrained Gog and Magog behind the barrier. They tried to penetrate the barrier or to climb over it, but to no avail. They could not succeed because the barrier is so huge and smooth. They began to dig, and they have been digging for centuries. They will continue to do so until the time when Allah decrees that they come out. At that time the barrier will collapse, and Gog and Magog will rush out in all directions, spreading corruption, uprooting plants, killing people. When Jesus prays against them, Allah will send a kind of worm in the napes of their necks, and they will be killed by it. Many elements in this story have no correspondence with the biblical account of the Gog-Magog War. However, when you look at the Christian pseudepigraphal writings, which were popular when these hadiths were written, you find in them the same basic elements. The following is an example of the teaching on Gog-Magog found in the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius. Quote, Hear now then in true fashion how these four empires were joined, the Ethiopian with the Macedonian and the Greek with the Roman. They are the four winds that move the great sea. Daniel 7 verse 2. Philip the Macedonian was the father of Alexander and took to wife Chuseth, the daughter of King Pole of Ethiopia. From her was born Alexander, who was made ruler of the Greeks. He founded Alexandria the Great and reigned nineteen years. He went to the east and killed Darius, king of the Medes. He was the ruler of many regions and cities, and he destroyed the earth. He even went as far as the sea, which is called the regions of the sun, where he beheld unclean races of horrible appearance. He gave orders and gathered them together with their women and children and all their villages, leading them away from the east. He restrained them with threats until they entered the northern lands, where there is no way in or out from east to west to visit them. Alexander prayed to God without interruption, and he heard his prayer. The Lord God gave a command to the two mountains, which are called the Breasts of the North, and they came together to within twelve cubits. Alexander built bronze gates and covered them with unmixed bitumen, so that if anyone wished to force them open by steel or melt them with fire, he would be able to do neither. But immediately every fire would be extinguished. Who are the nations and the kings that Alexander concealed in the north? Gog and Magog. Then in the last days the gates of the north will be opened, and the strength of those nations which Alexander shut up there will go forth. The whole earth will be terrified at the sight of them. Men will be afraid and flee in terror to hide themselves in mountains and caves and graves. They will die of fright, and very many will be wasted with fear. There will be no one to bury the bodies. The tribes which will go forth from the north will eat the flesh of men and will drink the blood of beasts like water. They will eat unclean serpents, scorpions, and every kind of filthy and abominable beast and reptile which crawls the earth. 
They will consume the dead bodies of beasts of burden and every woman's abortions. They will slay the young and take them away from their mothers and eat them. They will corrupt the earth and contaminate it. No one will be able to stand against them. After a week of years, when they have already captured the city of Joppa, the Lord will send one of the princes of his hosts and strike them down in a moment. Beside the fact that the king who built the gates to imprison Gog and Magog is given a different name in each account, Dual Karnan in the Islamic version and Alexander the Great in the Christian version, all the other elements are virtually identical. In fact, even many Islamic scholars recognize that Dual Karnan is probably a reference to Alexander. The name Dual or Dual Karnan literally means having two horns and is probably a reference to the fact that Alexander is sometimes pictured as having two horns in ancient Greek inscriptions and coins. The following are some of the areas of correspondence between the Islamic sources and Christian pseudepigrapha regarding Gog and Magog. Both kings were godly men who traveled to the Far East. Both kings found an unruly race of people there named Gog and Magog who needed to be imprisoned. Both kings imprisoned Gog and Magog by herding them between two mountains. Both kings built a gate between the two mountains using bronze and tar. Gog and Magog were unable to get out of the gates until God slash Allah decreed. At the end of time, both texts say that Gog and Magog will get past the barrier and cause destruction. Both texts say that God slash Allah will cause their destruction suddenly. The similarities shared by the Islamic Hadiths and the Christian forgeries should be quite obvious. Here again, the differences are telling as well. It is likely that Islamic writers didn't like the idea of having a pagan king, Alexander the Great, as the hero of this story, so they simply obscured his identity by giving him a fictitious name and claiming that he was a good Muslim, saying that he performed the Tawaf, an important Islamic ritual around the Kaaba with Abraham. It is interesting to note that the Christian sources actually stole this story from the much earlier Alexandrian romance stories and adapted it for their purposes by adding the parts about biblical prophecy. The Alexandrian romances were fictional stories about Alexander the Great that often depicted him in fanciful situations, like fighting mythical monsters. These stories were extremely popular shortly after Alexander's death and remained so for hundreds of years, undergoing numerous adaptions by various groups. So the Islamic writers of the Hadith basically stole their story of the Gog-Magog story from Christian forgers who had originally stolen it from the Alexander Romance stories and adapted it to fit with their end times beliefs. The Origin of the Dajjal in Apocalyptic Literature The Islamic version of the Antichrist, the Dajjal, is on the one hand clearly an adaptation of the biblical version of the Antichrist. However, many descriptions of the Dajjal's characteristics and actions in Islamic tradition are not found in the Bible. I will attempt to show in this section that when the descriptions of the Dajjal differ from the biblical account, it is clear that the information is being adapted from the Christian pseudepigraphal material. I will begin by showing that the physical descriptions of the Dajjal were borrowed from the Christian pseudepigrapha. In the Bible, there is very little, if any, discussion about what the Antichrist looks like. However, in the extra-biblical Christian pseudepigrapha, physical descriptions of the Antichrist became a very common theme. He is often described as having an odd complexion, thick hair, one blind eye, one deformed eye, and elongated physical features, as well as having three letters that mean deny or reject written on his forehead. 
Given what we have seen so far, it is not surprising that every one of these physical descriptions were later incorporated into the physical descriptions of the Dajjal found in the Hadiths. Deformed Eyes I will give three examples from the Christian pseudepigrapha about the Antichrist's eyes. First, from the Apocalypse of Pseudo Ezra. Quote, His right eye like the star that rises in the morning, and the other without motion. From Pseudo Daniel. Quote, he shall be bald-headed with a small and a large eye. From the Apocalypse of Pseudo John. Quote, His right eye like the star which rises in the morning, and the other like a lion's. And now descriptions of the Dajjal's eyes from the Islamic Hadiths. Quote, his right eye will be punctured, and his left eye would be raised to his forehead and will be sparkling like a star. Another Hadith says, Ad-Dajjal is blind in his right eye, and his eye looks like a bulging out grape. In both the Islamic and Christian traditions, we see the theme of the Antichrist slash Dajjal having two deformed eyes. One of them is blind, and the other is said to be like a star. These traditions vary slightly from source to source, but the basic characteristics are enough to suggest that the Islamic writers were borrowing from the Christian writers who preceded them. This will become more of a certainty as we see more instances of this type of borrowing. Three letters on his forehead. In the Bible, the Antichrist is said to cause his followers to receive a mark on their right hand or forehead. This mark is said to be the number 666. However, in the apocalyptic Christian literature, as well as the Islamic Hadiths, we see a significant variation of this teaching. They both claim it will be the Antichrist slash Dajjal himself that has this mark, not necessarily his followers. And the mark is actually three letters, not numbers, that mean reject or deny. As in the previous case, the fact that this tradition cannot be found in the Bible and that both Islamic and Christian traditions share almost identical views of this non-biblical teaching, show that Islamic borrowing from the earlier Christian pseudepigraphal material is very likely. From the Christian pseudepigraphal writing, the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Daniel, And he, the Antichrist, also has upon his forehead three letters, A, K, T, and the A signifies I deny, the K and I completely reject, the T, the befouled dragon. From the Islamic Hadiths, quote, Anas B. Malik reported that Allah's messenger said, Dajjal is blind in one eye, and there is written between his eyes the word kafir. He then spelled the word K-F-R, which every Muslim would be able to read. At first glance, the only similarities between the Christian and Islamic traditions about the mark of the beast is that it would be on the Antichrist slash Dajjal's forehead as opposed to his followers, and that it would be three letters as opposed to numbers. However, the fact that these three letters are different, AKT in the Christian tradition and KFR in the Islamic tradition, should not be seen as a true difference because both writers made the letters on the Antichrist's forehead mean the same thing, i.e. to deny and reject despite the letters being different. The writer of Pseudo-Daniel does not tell his readers why AKT should mean deny and reject. He seems to suggest that there is kind of a secret meaning to the letters that is not able to be discovered by normal means. The writer of the Hadith, however, changes the letters to KFR, a reference to the Arabic word kafir, which literally means to deny or reject. In other words, the three letters on the Antichrist slash Dajjal's forehead mean the same thing in both traditions, though the letters were changed in the Islamic tradition, 
possibly to avoid the need to interpret the letters in an esoteric way, as in the case of Pseudo-Daniel. Skin and Hair The last of the physical descriptions of the Antichrist and the Dajjal found in the extra-biblical traditions that I will discuss are those regarding his skin and hair. From the Christian pseudepigraphal for writing The Apocalypse of Pseudo-John, The appearance of his face is dusky. The hairs of his head are sharp, like darts. Now from the Islamic Hadiths, Ubada ibn Samit narrates the prophet, quote, The hair on his head will be ajad, which means coarse and curly. Another Hadith says, Dajjal is blind of left eye with thick hair. Another Hadith, red-complexioned fat with coarse hair. The emphasis that the Christian pseudepigraphal material puts on the coarseness of the Antichrist's hair seems to be reflected in the Hadith writers using the Arabic word ajad, or coarse, to describe the Dajjal's hair. The complexion of the Dajjal is variously described in the Hadiths as reddish or sometimes fair. This variation on the skin color in the Hadith may be related to the original Christian sources being somewhat vague, using the word dusky to describe the Antichrist's skin. Descriptions of the Antichrist's Actions A number of descriptions about the actions of the Antichrist are found in extra-biblical Christian traditions, but cannot be found in the Bible. Here again, we see these non-biblical teachings showing up in Islamic traditions. Three Years of Drought From the Christian pseudepigraphal writing, The Apocalypse of Pseudo-John, Antichrist, he shall be exalted even to heaven, and shall be cast down even to Hades, making false displays. And then will I make the heavens brazen, so that it shall not give moisture upon the earth. And I will hide the clouds in secret places, so that they shall not bring moisture upon the earth. And again I said, Lord, and how many years will he do this upon the earth? And I heard a voice saying to me, Here, righteous John, three years shall those times be. Now I will quote from the Islamic Hadiths. Quote, there will be three hard years before the Dajjal. During them, people will be stricken by a great famine. In the first year, Allah will command the sky to withhold a third of its rain, and the earth to withhold a third of its produce. In the second year, Allah will command the sky to withhold two-thirds of its rain, and the earth to withhold two-thirds of its produce. In the third year, Allah will command the sky to withhold all of its rain, and it will not rain a single drop of rain. In both the Christian and Islamic traditions, God will withhold rain for three years because of the Antichrist. Though the Christian version is not specific on the matter, it seems to suggest that the three years of drought come during the Antichrist's reign, whereas the Islamic traditions say that the drought precedes the appearance of the Dajjal. In addition to Islamic traditions suggesting an incremental drought, as opposed to the Christian version where the drought is total for the duration of the three years. Despite these slight differences, the similarities are telling. A test with Enoch and Elijah. From the Christian pseudepigrapha, quote, And then I shall send forth Enoch and Elijah to convict him, and they shall show him to be a liar and a deceiver. Now from the Islamic Hadiths, quote, Two angels resembling two prophets, one on either side, will accompany him, the Dajjal. This will be to test mankind. Hence Dajjal will ask, Am I not your Lord? Do I not give life and death? One of the angels will reply, You are a liar. However, nobody will be able to hear this reply besides the other angel. The second angel addressing the first angel will say, You are speaking the truth. Everybody will hear what the second angel said and will think that an angel is testifying that the Dajjal is Allah, though in reality the second angel was addressing the first and agreeing with his reply that you are speaking the truth that the Dajjal is certainly a liar. 
The Christian source here refers to Enoch and Elijah, the Old Testament prophets who many Christians both then and now believe will be the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Islamic tradition mentions two angels resembling two prophets. The description in the Hadith is also slightly different in intent from the Christian text, but it's notable that both the Islamic and Christian traditions describe the two witnesses performing a test to prove the Antichrist slash Dajjal is a quote, liar. There are many other similarities between the Antichrist and pseudepigraphical texts and the Islamic Hadiths, and much more work needs to be done in comparing the two traditions. I will, however, assume that the reader has enough information to see the similarities for themselves by this point, and I will move on to the commonalities between the Mahdi and the last Roman Emperor. The Origin of the Mahdi in Apocalyptic Literature Now that you have seen the significant dependence that the writers of the Islamic Hadiths had on early extra-biblical Christian writings, it should be much easier to convince you that the concept of the Mahdi was derived entirely from the same apocalyptic Christian writings. In the case of the Islamic Isa and the Dajjal, there is a clear one-to-one -one comparison with the Christian Jesus and the Antichrist. As we've seen, Isa is based primarily on the Christian Jesus with adjustments for Islamic doctrine. The same is true with the Dajjal, where we've seen that the basic concept of the biblical Antichrist was used. The Islamic Mahdi, on the other hand, is much more interesting in this respect, since there is no obvious figure in the Bible that corresponds directly to him. The Bible never mentions a human king who fights religious wars and restores a temporary orthodoxy before the appearance of the Antichrist and the return of Jesus. It would seem at first glance that the writers of the Hadith have come up with an entirely new end times character. However, I will attempt to show that it was, in fact, the early Christian writers of the Pseudepigrapha that came up with this brand new eschatological character, which was then copied and adapted by the writers of the Hadiths to form their concept of the Mahdi. The new end times character that the Christian extra-biblical apocalyptic writers introduced was a divinely guided monarch who would overcome the present tribulations and usher in a time of temporary peace before the return of Jesus. Though he was not given a name at the time, he would come to be known as the last Roman emperor. The primary text that popularized the idea was Pseudo-Methodius, written in the early 7th century, but the Syrian apocalypse of Daniel played a role as well. The last Roman emperor was said to arise at a time when Roman Christianity was in great distress. He would fight a number of wars with the enemies of Christianity and restore Roman Christianity to its previous place of prominence. He would rule for seven to ten years, which are described as being particularly plentiful. Then, just before the Antichrist and the Gog-Magog War broke out, Jesus would return, defeat the rebellion, judge the enemies of God, and the last Roman emperor would give Jesus his crown. It is difficult to explain how prominent this idea was at the time. In his paper, The Last Roman Emperor and the Mahdi, Andras Kraft says that the last Roman emperor was given, quote, near canonical status at that time and in the centuries that followed. This figure eventually developed into the so-called Great Monarch, a concept still believed in certain Catholic circles today. The last Roman emperor was also mentioned by Christopher Columbus in his book, Book of Prophecies, written in the early 1500s. Considering that the concept of the last Roman emperor was believed to be true biblical teaching by so many Christians at the time, it is not surprising that Islamic writers incorporated the idea into their eschatology as well. 
Many of the same early Christian texts from which the Hadith writers were borrowing were the same texts that speak of the last Roman emperor. In other words, if the Islamic writers were already constructing their doctrines about the Gog Magog War, the Dajjal, and Isa from pseudo methodius and other similar texts, it is no surprise that they also incorporated the last Roman emperor from those same documents into their theology. The Islamic Antichrist proponents try very hard to find similarities between the Mahdi and the Christian Antichrist. I will argue later that this can only be done in a very general way. But if you choose to compare the Islamic Mahdi with the last Roman emperor figure instead of the Antichrist, you can produce a much more impressive list of similarities. For example, the Mahdi and the last Roman emperor share the following characteristics. Number one, they both are human kings. Both the Mahdi and the last Roman emperor are described as purely human, not angelic or divine. Any supernatural things that happen during each of their careers are attributed to God slash Allah. The idea in both cases is that God slash Allah supports each of these kings and therefore guides and protects them. Number two, they both come at a time of great trouble for their respective religions. The last Roman emperor in pseudo Methodius, quote, then suddenly tribulation and distress will arise against them. The king of the Greeks, i.e. the Romans, will come out against them in great anger. The last Roman emperor is preceded by signs very similar to the Islamic minor signs, which describe a moral decline. Quote, Men will get themselves up as false women, wearing prostitutes' clothes, standing in the streets and squares of cities openly before all they will be adorned like women. They will exchange natural sex for that which is against nature. This is compared to the Mahdi in Islamic tradition. The Mahdi is frequently mentioned to come on the scene as a result of fitan, trials and tribulations. He is preceded by many of the minor signs, which describe a time of moral decline. More specifically, he is said to come to power to combat the Sufani, a Muslim tyrant who causes great trouble. The Mahdi is said to defeat the Sufani once he gains power. Number three, they both are reluctant to rule. The last Roman emperor and pseudo Methodius, quote, the last Roman emperor will be roused in order to rule, as from a drunken stupor, like one whom men had thought dead and worthless. The Mahdi in Islamic tradition, quote, and he, the Mahdi, will accept it, the rule, reluctantly. He will not know, and they will not know, that he is the expected Mahdi. And previously, there will be no calls for him to be the Mahdi, and he will not even know himself, but God will choose him, and the people will choose him suddenly. Number four, they both fight wars to destroy other human kings opposed to their religious system. The last Roman emperor in pseudo Methodius, quote, he will go forth against them from the Ethiopian Sea and will send the sword and desolation into Ithribus, southern Arabia, their homeland. Egypt will be desolated, Arabia burned with fire, the land of Ossiana burned, and the sea provinces pacified. The whole indignation and fury of the king of the Romans will blaze forth against those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Mahdi in Islamic tradition, quote, Although the uprising of Hadrat al-Mahdi will commence in Mecca, he will conquer the land of Hiaz, a large section of Arabia. Another quote. He will have a sword with him, which he will unsheathe, and through him God will conquer the lands of Rome, China, Turkestan, Dalam, Sindh, Hind, Kabul, Sham, and Khazar. Another quote. God will send al-Mahdi, and through him the religion will regain its grandeur, and through him and for him glorious victories will be attained. Number five. The primary enemy that he destroys will be a Muslim king who rules over Syria and kills women and children. 
In Pseudo-Methodius, the last Roman emperor put particular emphasis on destroying Syria. Quote, the land of Syria will be emptied and reduced. Those dwelling in her will perish by the sword. Egypt and the east and Syria will be under the yoke and hemmed in by great tribulations. They will be constrained without mercy. The inhabitants of Egypt and Syria will be in trouble and affliction seven times the greater for those in captivity. The reason the world is in tribulations when he arises is due to the Muslim threat from those regions. The people he destroys are described as, quote, casting lots for children. Now the Mahdi in Islamic tradition. The Mahdi also places particular emphasis on destroying Syria when he comes to power. This is because of threat from the, quote, Sufani, an Arabic king who rules from Syria. The Sufani is also said to treat women and children badly. Quote, a man will emerge from the depths of Damascus, Syria. He will be called Sufani. Most of those who follow him will be from the tribe of Kalb. He will kill by ripping the stomachs of women and even kill the children. A man from my family will appear in the Haram. The news of his advent will reach the Sufani, and he will send to him one of his armies. He, referring to the Mahdi, will defeat them. They will travel with whomever remains until they come to a desert, and they will be swallowed. None will be saved except the one who has informed the others about them. Number six, they both rule only briefly. The last Roman emperor in Pseudo-Methodius, quote, After this, the king of the Romans will go down and live in Jerusalem for seven and a half seven times, i.e. years. When the ten and a half years are completed, the son of perdition will appear. The Mahdi in Islamic tradition. The Hadiths give different times for the Mahdi's rule five, seven, eight, nine, or nineteen years, but in any case it is a brief rule. Perhaps one reason for the contradictions in the Hadiths about the number of years the Mahdi rules is because of the odd way that the length of the rule of the last Roman emperor is described in Pseudo-Methodius, i.e. seven and a half seven times. Number seven, they both succeed in restoring orthodoxy to their religion, but only briefly. The last Roman emperor in Pseudo-Methodius, the last Roman emperor destroys the enemies of Christianity and sets up his religious rule, but this time is followed by terrible destruction, such as the Gog-Magog War and the appearance of the Antichrist. The Mahdi in Islamic tradition. Similarly, the Mahdi succeeds in destroying the enemies of Islam and setting up a religious peace, but that peaceful time is followed by the Gog-Magog War and the appearance of the Dajjal. Both of those events cause immeasurable destruction to the earth and to Islam. Number eight, they both rule over a temporary time of peace and prosperity. The last Roman emperor in Pseudo-Methodius, quote, the whole indignation and fury of the king of the Romans will blaze forth against those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the earth will sit in peace and there will be a great peace and tranquility upon the earth. The Mahdi in Islamic tradition, the Mahdi will appear, Allah will grant him reign, the earth will bring forth its fruits, he will give a lot of money, cattle, and will increase, and the Ummah will become great. He will fill out the earth with peace and justice. Number nine, both of their reigns will be followed by the Gog-Magog War. The last Roman emperor in Pseudo-Methodius. The description of the peace the last Roman emperor will win for himself is followed by the description of the Gog-Magog War. Quote, then the gates of the north will be opened, and the strength of those nations which Alexander shut up there will go forth. It is clear from the context that follows that the initial peace of the last Roman emperor is followed by the Gog-Magog War. The Mahdi in Islamic tradition. 
In Islamic tradition, it is clear that the Gog-Magog war takes place after the initial peace of the Mahdi. In addition, Isa, not the Mahdi, is ruling at the time of the Gog-Magog war, which conclusively puts the war after the Mahdi's initial time of peace. Number 10. The Antichrist figure comes on the scene at the end of his career. The last Roman emperor in Pseudo-Methodius, quote, After this, the king of the Romans will go down to live in Jerusalem for seven and a half seven times, i.e. years. When the ten and a half years are completed, the son of perdition will appear. The Mahdi in Islamic tradition. In the Hadith, it's quite clear that the Dajjal does not appear until after the Mahdi has defeated Constantinople, an event that occurs toward the end of his career. Isa is said to appear as the Mahdi's armies, recently returned from Constantinople, are preparing to fight the Dajjal. Isa's appearance marks the beginning of the end of the Mahdi's rule. Number 11. In both cases, Jesus returns at the end of his time, after the Antichrist has been revealed. The last Roman emperor in Pseudo-Methodius. Though the actual return of Jesus is not mentioned in Pseudo-Methodius, it does describe the last Roman emperor going to Golgotha, the cross of Christ, and laying his crown on the cross, symbolically giving his throne to Jesus. He does this because of the appearance of the Antichrist. The Mahdi in Islamic tradition. As mentioned earlier, Isa appears after the conquest of Constantinople, when the Mahdi hears of the appearance of the Dajjal. Isa seems to appear for the expressed purpose of defeating the Dajjal something the Mahdi apparently cannot do. Number 12. In both cases, he does not defeat the Antichrist. The last Roman emperor in Pseudo-Methodius. As mentioned in the previous point, the last Roman emperor, upon hearing of the Antichrist's appearance, goes to give his throne symbolically to Jesus. He dies at this point. The last words of Pseudo-Methodius make clear that the Antichrist is still on the earth after the last Roman emperor's death. When the cross has been lifted up on high to heaven, the king of the Romans will directly give up his spirit. Then every principality and power will be destroyed, that the son of perdition may be manifest. The Mahdi in Islamic tradition. Here again, the Islamic traditions are quite clear that Isa, not the Mahdi, defeats the Dajjal. Quote, and Allah would then send Jesus, the son of Mary, who would resemble Urab and Masad. He, Jesus Christ, would chase him, the Dajjal, and kill him. Number 13. In both cases, Jesus will rule after him. The last Roman emperor and Pseudo-Methodius. This is seen by the last Roman emperor abdicating his throne to Jesus and then dying. The text presumes that Jesus will then return to earth and rule after this. Other material from the time, such as the Apocalypse of Daniel, make this point much more clear. The Mahdi in Islamic Tradition. It is difficult to know exactly how long the Mahdi lives after Isa arrives. Some Muslims believe he will immediately be killed by a bearded woman or give up the rule of the world to Jesus and be killed later. Others believe there will be a short time in which they rule together before Isa takes over. In any case, since Isa is said to rule for 40 years after his return and the Mahdi's rule is said to be much shorter, it is clear that Isa rules after the Mahdi dies. When you add to this the supplemental information we've already discussed, such as the Gog-Magog war similarities in both versions, or the descriptions of the Antichrist Dajjal having one blind eye and one that shines like a star, it becomes nearly impossible to see these similarities as coincidences. The Mahdi idea, just like so many of the other non-biblical concepts in Islamic eschatology, 
is based on the peculiar ideas found in the extra-biblical traditions of the early Christian church. It should be noted that in the case of the Mahdi and the last Roman emperor, the writers of the Hadiths continued with their method of reversing the religions involved in the original story to make Islam out to be the victor. So in this case, instead of this eschatological hero being a Roman king who fights for Christianity, he is an Islamic king who fights to restore Islam. This is all that is needed to explain the development of the Mahdi idea. That being said, I would recommend the paper I mentioned earlier, The Last Roman Emperor and the Mahdi by Andras Kraft, for more background on this subject. Chapter 12. A Closer Look at the Comparisons Provided by Islamic Antichrist Proponents Isa and the False Prophet In his book Islamic Antichrist, Joel Richardson compares the Islamic version of Jesus, Isa, to the biblical false prophet. As previously noted, his theory is that a fake Muslim Jesus who calls himself Isa will appear in the future and his real identity will be the false prophet of Revelation 13. Richardson provides a list of four main similarities between Isa and the false prophet. I will discuss each in the order they appear in his book. An Unholy Partnership The first similarity Richardson proposes is that Isa has a partnership with the Mahdi in the same way that the false prophet has a partnership with the Antichrist. Since Richardson believes the Mahdi is the Antichrist, he also believes that Isa must be the false prophet based on the belief that Isa and the Mahdi are said to have a partnership of some kind. Is Isa subordinate to the Mahdi? In order to make the partnership of Isa and the Mahdi look anything like the Antichrist and false prophet, Richardson and others need to convince their readers that Isa will actually be subordinate to the Mahdi, in the same way that the false prophet is subordinate to the Antichrist. The problem with this idea is that despite Islamic Antichrist theorists constantly saying Isa is subordinate to the Mahdi, many Islamic sources vehemently disagree and maintain it is actually Isa who outranks the Mahdi, not the other way around. They have very good reasons for saying this. The first is an important doctrine in the Quran that says prophets outrank all other created beings. Quote, the statement of Allah Most High after naming numerous prophets each one we preferred above all beings, Surah 6.86. In his commentary, Imam Badawi said of this verse, There is proof in this for their superiority over those other than them from created things. This idea is confirmed several times in the Hadiths. Quote, the Prophet, Allah bless him and grant him peace, said, Allah selected my companions over all created things, apart from the messengers and prophets. Since Isa is a prophet in Islam, and the Mahdi is only an imam and a caliph, Isa outranks the Mahdi. This is not my opinion. It is the common understanding of the relationship between the Mahdi and Isa by the majority of Muslims. This should also be quite obvious from the Hadiths previously discussed in this book. For example, we have seen that it is Isa who destroys the Dajjal, executes judgment on the world, defeats Gog and Magog through prayer, and rules the world after the Mahdi serves his role. This is clearly a more exalted set of tasks when compared to the Mahdi, who fights regular wars with human enemies and achieves temporary peace and prosperity. So what kind of arguments do Islamic Antichrist theorists like Joel Richardson make to support the Mahdi outranking Isa? They point to the hadiths that describe Isa allowing the Mahdi to pray a ritualistic prayer before the battle with the Dajjal. They claim that when Isa allows the Mahdi to pray this prayer, it is essentially the same as saying the Mahdi is of a higher rank than Isa. Here's the hadith in question. 
Quote, this hadith has been narrated on the authority of Jabir ibn Abdillah al-Ansari, that I heard the Messenger of Allah saying, A group of my ummah will fight for the truth until near the day of judgment, when Jesus, son of Mary, will descend, and the leader of them will ask him to lead the prayer. But Jesus declines, saying, No, verily, among you Allah has made leaders for others, and he has bestowed his bounty upon them. A prominent Islamic theology website makes the following points when discussing this hadith. Quote, the fact that our liege lord, Isa, Allah bless him, was offered to lead the prayer indicates that people understood his superiority over all others. These very narrations indicate the reason for our liege lord, Isa's refusal to lead the prayer when offered to do so, namely to show how Allah has honored the community of Muhammad. Thus, when requested to lead, he will reply, No, for some of you are leaders upon others out of Allah's honoring this community. Basically, what is being pictured here is the Mahdi asking Isa to lead the prayer since he understood Isa's general superiority over him, but Isa refuses on the grounds that the Mahdi is the leader of the men who are present. It should be noted that certain sections of Shiite Muslims, which constitute about 10 to 20 percent of Muslims, do in fact take this passage to mean that the Mahdi is superior to Isa. Because of this, I will not state too strongly what Muslims believe about the relationship between Isa and the Mahdi. However, I will say that Richardson and others who tell Christians that Muslims believe Isa is subordinate to the Mahdi are at best only talking about 20% of the Muslim population. As we have seen, there are good arguments to support the Sunni position, such as Isa ruling the world after the Mahdi, Isa, not the Mahdi, destroying the Dajjal and Gog Magog, the contextual evidence that shows that the Mahdi offered the prayer to Isa first, and the Quran passages which state that the prophets are always superior to non-prophets. The most important similarity that Richardson makes when talking about the unholy partnership is that Isa is subordinate to the Mahdi in the same way the false prophet is subordinate to the Antichrist. If that premise is called into question, which I very much think it should be, then the rest of this theory about the supposed similarities between Isa and the false prophet or the Mahdi and the Antichrist is on thin ice. The Enforcer The next similarity between Isa and the false prophet, suggested by Richardson, is that both are enforcers of the orders from their leader. In the case of the false prophet, this is more or less true. The false prophet institutes the mark of the beast system and carries out its implementation, Revelation 13, 16-17. He is also the one who sets up the image of the beast, which the world is forced to worship, Revelation 13, 14-15. Finally, he is clearly doing all these things, so the Antichrist, not himself, will be glorified. Revelation 13.12 It is only when Richardson tries to show that Isa is the Mahdi's chief enforcer that I must disagree. Despite the relevant section in his book being titled, The Muslim Jesus as the Mahdi's Chief Enforcer, he doesn't offer a single argument to prove this. Instead, he shows that Isa is an enforcer of Islam in general when he becomes the ruler of the world. For example, he cites that Isa is said to convert Christians to Islam, abolish the jizya tax, and judge the world with Islamic law. None of these hadiths suggest that Isa is doing this on behalf of the Mahdi. The Mahdi is said to rule for 7 to 19 years, and most, if not all, of those years take place before Isa even shows up. Isa is said to rule for 40 years. So it's clear that Isa does not need the Mahdi to help him rule, since he is said to be doing so long after the Mahdi is dead. The Executioner 
Richardson's third point is that both Isa and the false prophet set up systems that will ultimately lead to the death of those who hold to any other religion. The false prophet, for example, sets up the mark of the beast system. If people do not receive this mark, they will be executed. Isa, on the other hand, abolishes the jizya tax that allows non-Muslims to live peaceably with Muslims. Although not expressly stated in the hadiths, it is presumed that this would lead to the death of non-Muslims. I submit that the similarity here is minimal, and in any case, this kind of general similarity is to be expected, since the Hadith writers, as we have seen, based their Isa on the biblical and extra-biblical accounts of the Christian Jesus in the Kingdom Age. Jesus rules the earth with an iron rod, demands religious obedience, pilgrimage, and gifts. He is also said to slay the wicked during his earthly reign. If Muslims were simply basing their Isa on the biblical prophecies about Jesus in the Kingdom Age, such general similarities as the one Richardson proposes here are to be expected. Two Horns Like a Lamb Richardson's final attempt to equate Isa with the false prophet is related to the following verse about the false prophet in Revelation 13.11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake like a dragon. Richardson argues that because the false prophet is said to have two horns like a lamb, the false prophet is attempting to imitate Jesus, who is often referred to as the Lamb. I believe the correct way to interpret this passage is in light of Jesus' warnings about false prophets in Matthew 7 verse 15, which says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Jesus said that in the last days false prophets would come in sheep's clothing but would inwardly be like wolves. In this passage, it seems clear that Jesus is not using the sheep imagery to refer to himself, but to suggest that false prophets would act as though they are meek and harmless like lambs. He is essentially using the sheep imagery the same way he does in many other places in Scripture, in a generic sense to speak of people who are meek and harmless, like his church. In Revelation 13.11, it seems that lambs are to be understood in this way, e.g. a meek person, and not a reference to Jesus, because the verse goes on to contrast the false prophets looking like a harmless lamb with his dragon-like speech. Then I saw another beast coming from the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but was speaking like a dragon. This is virtually the same illustration Jesus gave in Matthew 7.15 about false prophets who dress up like sheep but are really wolves. However, in this case, a dragon is used instead of a wolf, which is probably to link the speech of the false prophet to the satanic, dragon-like doctrine he will be teaching. The idea that the false prophet has two horns like a lamb is, therefore, to be understood as him trying to seem like a genuine lamb, a meek and harmless person, because this is the normal number of horns a lamb will grow just after they are weaned. In other words, the concept of having two horns like a lamb is to be connected with the idea of having sheep's clothing. This has been noted in many Bible commentaries, such as theologian Johann Peter Lang's Commentary on the Holy Scriptures, Critical, Doctrinal, and Homiletical, Volume 10, where he says, quote, We do not translate like the lamb. The two horns, therefore, are not to be placed in the category of a defect, has but two horns, and is thus distinguished as a natural sheep. In addition, I draw the reader's attention to how Jesus used the term false prophets in the Olivet Discourse, which almost certainly has the false prophet of Revelation 13 in mind. Matthew 24, 23-24 says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. 
for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. In this verse, Jesus is contrasting the false prophets who show great signs, the same Greek phrase John uses to describe the false prophet signs in Revelation 13, with false Christs. The fact that Jesus makes a clear distinction between these last days false Christs and false prophets makes it very unlikely that the false prophet will also be a false Christ, as Richardson is suggesting. It seems clear Jesus is warning of two distinct types of last days deceivers, and not one deceiver who will be both a false Christ and a false prophet. A more plausible explanation. I will once again suggest the best way to refute an argument is to offer a more plausible explanation than the one you are attempting to refute. In the case of the false prophet, I think I have a much better theory than the one proposed by Richardson, one that takes into account all the information the Bible offers about the false prophet. However, since I am determined to keep my personal views out of the main body of this text, I will include my thoughts on the false prophet in Appendix Number 4. The Mahdi and the Antichrist Islamic Antichrist theorists compare the Islamic Mahdi to the Biblical Antichrist. They basically believe that when the Antichrist shows up, he will claim to be the Mahdi of Islamic traditions. Joel Richardson offers a list of similarities between the Mahdi and the Antichrist in his book, and just like in the case of Isa and the false prophet comparisons, I will take each supposed similarity one by one. A powerful political and military world leader. Richardson points out that both the Mahdi and the Antichrist are said to be powerful political and military world leaders. This is true, but it should be noted that this is a very general statement that can be applied to just about everyone we've discussed in this section of the book. For example, the Islamic Isa certainly could be described as a powerful political and military world leader, even more powerful than the Mahdi. In addition, the last Roman emperor from the Christian pseudepigraphal material could also be described as a powerful political and military world leader. As we've already discussed, the concept of the Mahdi is almost certainly based on the last Roman emperor idea in Christian tradition. The pattern that will develop as we go over this list of similarities is Richardson will describe commonalities that are much more applicable to the Mahdi and the last Roman emperor than to the Mahdi and the Antichrist. We will also see that differences between the Mahdi and the Antichrist are the same differences between the last Roman emperor and the Antichrist. This is why the majority of Richardson's similarities must by necessity be extremely general. For example, in this case, though the Mahdi and the last Roman emperor are powerful political and military leaders, they differ from the Antichrist in that they both die, allowing Jesus to rule the world after their very short reign. This is certainly not the case with the Antichrist and the false prophet. The fact that Isa, not the Mahdi, is the one who restores the world to a state in which the lambs and wolves graze together and the vipers no longer bite people is a testament to the primacy of Isa over the Mahdi in the Islamic system. My point is that the general comparisons made by Richardson could be very specific comparisons if he were equating the Mahdi to the correct counterpart, i.e. the last Roman emperor who is a political and military world leader who rules the world before Jesus takes his throne. However, since Richardson is determined to equate the Mahdi with the Antichrist, he must minimize the importance of Isa as the final ruler in Islamic tradition. The Mahdi as a spiritual world leader Richardson's next point is that the Mahdi and the Antichrist are both said to be spiritual world leaders. Again, this is true in a general sense, but this has the same problem with the previous point, 
that this general statement is actually truer of Isa and the last Roman emperor. In the case of Isa, he is the one who actually converts the world to Islam and judges the world in accordance with Islamic law. It is only after the Mahdi dies and Isa begins his rule that the universal peace and justice based on Islamic law begins. The Mahdi should be seen more as a forerunner, preparing the way for Isa's new world. The actual type of spiritual world leader the Mahdi is said to be is much more like the spiritual world leader the last Roman emperor is said to be. That is, they both come at a time when the world has lost faith, they both fight limited wars with the nations that oppose their religion to restore orthodox religion, they both set up limited peace based on their religion, and this peace lasts until the Antichrist slash Dajjal arrives, in which case they both look to Isa slash Jesus for help. The Mahdi kills Jews and Christians. Next, Richardson says that both the Mahdi and the Antichrist kill Jews and Christians, and therefore should be equated with one another. There are several problems with this comparison. The first is that, while it is true that the Mahdi does kill Jews and Christians during his wars, he begins his military campaign against the Sufani, a Muslim leader from Syria. The Mahdi also conquers many other Islamic countries, including parts of Iraq and Saudi Arabia. The Mahdi is even said to team up with Christians at one point to fight their common Arab enemies. The Christians and Muslims even conquer Constantinople together. However, this Christian-Islamic coalition ends when the Christians claim the victory was due to Christ and the Muslim armies claim it was due to Allah. There is no systematic killing of Christians whatsoever by the Mahdi, certainly not in the way the Antichrist is said to do. The systematic killing on religious grounds will only happen after Isa arrives to judge the world by Islamic law. So here again we have the same problem. Richardson's supposed similarities with the Mahdi and the Antichrist are truer of Isa than the Mahdi. The actual type of killing of Jews and Christians done by the Mahdi is the same type of killing the last Roman emperor is said to do. The last Roman emperor is said to fight wars with those who oppose him and his religion. His killing of people is all military in nature. There is no hint of executing civilians because of their religion, but rather he is pictured as subduing the nations that oppose him. Those who die, die in battle with the Mahdi's armies, just like the last Roman emperor. The Mahdi conquers and rules from Jerusalem. Richardson says that both the Antichrist and the Mahdi conquer and rule from Jerusalem. This initial statement is only half true. In the Hadith, Jerusalem seems to be conquered before the Mahdi arrives, and the people who fight there are Arabs. Quote, then another black banner will come from Khorasan. Their turbans are black and their clothes are white. At their front end will be a man named Subab bin Sali from Tamim. Note, this is not the Mahdi. They will defeat supporters of the Sufani, a Muslim leader, and proceed further until he arrives to Jerusalem, where he will lay the foundation for the Mahdi's future dominion. I cannot find many hadiths that state specifically the Mahdi will actually rule his caliphate from Jerusalem, but as in the case of the hadith above, there is enough to at least suggest that he does. Unlike the Antichrist, however, there is certainly nothing in the hadiths that describe the Mahdi setting up the temple or allowing Jewish people to start the daily sacrifices again, Daniel 9.27, let alone sitting in the temple and declaring himself to be God. So I would again submit that the part of the similarity that is true is a general statement that better applies to the Islamic Isa, who, without question, is said in the Hadith to rule from Jerusalem. There are two probable reasons why the Hadith writers felt compelled to incorporate Jerusalem into their eschatology. First, the Bible is clear that Jerusalem is where the Kingdom Age will take place. 
Even though Islamic writers obviously had no problem with making certain editorial changes of biblical stories, the centrality of Jerusalem in the last days was too significant to tamper with. The last battle with the Dajjal is therefore said to be in Jerusalem, and Isa is said to rule the world from Jerusalem, just like in the Bible. The Hadith writers' dependence on the Bible for the basic framework of their eschatology forced them to make Jerusalem the center of the last days, despite their probable preference for making it Mecca or Medina. This is the first reason that Jerusalem was included, though I would argue the majority of Islamic texts that mention the city apply to Isa, not the Mahdi. The only reason the Mahdi has any relationship to Jerusalem at all is probably related to the last Roman emperor. It should not be overlooked that both the Mahdi and the last Roman emperor are said to travel from Constantinople to Jerusalem after hearing of the Antichrist's appearance. This very specific similarity should be enough to show that the Mahdi is being patterned after the apocalyptic writings regarding the last Roman emperor, which explains the mention of Jerusalem in relationship to the Mahdi, since Jerusalem is where both men give up their rule to Jesus. The Seven-Year Peace Agreement This is the first of the similarities Richardson suggests that does not have the problem of being too general. In fact, it's quite specific. He quotes a hadith that says the Mahdi will make a seven-year treaty with the Romans, and since he also believes that Daniel 9.27 is speaking of the Antichrist making a seven-year treaty with the Jews, he says they must be a reference to the same thing. I will quote the hadith in question below. Quote, the prophet said there will be four peace agreements between you and the Romans. The fourth will be mediated through a person who will be from the progeny of Hadrat Aaron, Honorable Aaron, the brother of Moses and will be upheld for seven years. The people asked, O Prophet Muhammad, who will be the imam of the people at that time? The Prophet said, He will be from my progeny, and will be exactly forty years of age. His face will shine like a star. The first problem is this hadith is almost certainly referring to an event other hadiths talk about at great length, namely the treaty that unites the Roman armies and the armies of the Mahdi to fight against their common enemies. As previously noted, this treaty ends because of a disagreement between the soldiers about which god has been responsible for their victories. Note that in the following hadith, the treaty is said to be for ten years, not seven. Quote, you will enter into a reconciliation treaty with them, the Romans, for ten years. You and the Romans will invade an enemy behind Constantinople. When you return for that invasion, you will see Constantinople. Then together you will invade Al-Kufa, a Shia city in Iraq. Then you and the Romans together will invade some of the people to the east. You will capture women, children, and money, possessions, and wealth. The Romans will tell you, give us our share of the children and women. The Muslims will say, no, we cannot, based on a religion, but take from us the rest of the things, meaning from the possessions, etc. The Romans say, we will not take except from everything. The Romans say, you won the battle against the common enemies because of us and our cross. The Muslims will say, no, Allah granted victory and support to its religion. So they will raise the cross. Muslims will become angry. A Muslim man will jump on the cross and break it. The Romans will leave angry, and when you reach their king, they will tell them, the Arabs deceived us and withheld from us what we were entitled to, and they broke our cross and killed some of us. Their king becomes very angry and amasses a large army and reconcile with other nations. They will march against the Muslims. Though the timing of the Roman treaties is very hard to pin down due to multiple contradictory accounts, it seems likely that some Hadith writers wrote seven years as opposed to ten years 
because of the time between the Constantinople battle and the Dajjal, which is occasionally said to be seven years. One hadith says, Abdullah bin Basur reports that the Prophet said, between the Mohama, the final war or battle, and the conquest of the city, i.e. Constantinople, there will be six years, and the Dajjal shall appear in the seventh year. To further illustrate the unreliability of these hadiths, especially concerning the amount of years involved, the seven years in the above hadith, about the length of time between the conquest of Constantinople and the Dajjal, is sometimes referred to as being seven months. Quote, Al-Mahama al-Kubra conquest of Constantinople and the coming of the Dajjal will occur within a period of seven months. Richardson wants to equate this seven-year treaty with the Romans to the Antichrist making a covenant in Daniel 9.27. He suggests that the treaty the Mahdi makes with the Romans would allow the Jews to rebuild the temple. But it seems clear what Muslims believe this treaty is about, and it has nothing to do with the Jewish temple. It is a military alliance with the Romans to help the Muslims destroy various enemies. The treaty is broken when the soldiers get into a fight about religion. As alluded to earlier, there is also the problem with the number of years mentioned in the Hadith quoted by Richardson. The treaty with the Romans is almost always referred to in other Hadiths as being ten years long, not seven. As far as I know, the only Hadith that says it will be seven years is the one Richardson quotes. Hadiths are notorious for having contradictory statements, especially when it comes to numbers. But to choose the Hadith with the number that best suits your theory, in light of it being the only Hadith on the subject containing that number, is not good. The treaty is not with the Jews. Another problem with this theory is that this treaty in the Hadith that Richardson quotes does not include the Jews at all. It is true that a Jew from the tribe of Aaron mediates the treaty, but the treaty itself is actually between the Romans and the Muslims. So, when Richardson says this treaty will have something to do with the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, I have to ask why. The Jews are not entering into any kind of agreement with the Muslims, Romans, or anyone else in this Hadith. They are simply acting as a middleman between the Muslims and the Christians. Rethinking the Peace Treaty Finally, I submit that this entire issue may be moot, since it may not even be a peace treaty that the Antichrist makes. The actual words used in Daniel 9.27 are, Make firm a covenant. And while a covenant can mean a contract or perhaps a treaty, it certainly can be a reference to an actual covenant in the biblical sense of the word as well. Again, my self-imposed limitations prevent me from detailing my personal thoughts about this here, but I will include a discussion about the covenant made by the Antichrist in Appendix Number 5. Richardson's White Horse Misquotation the last comparison Richardson makes is actually very deceptive, that is, if he knew beforehand what he was doing. However, I will give him the benefit of the doubt and chalk this up to an honest mistake on his part. Richardson says that an influential Islamic scholar in the Middle Ages believed the Mahdi is in view in Revelation 6, 1-2, in which a rider on a white horse, typically understood to be the Antichrist, is seen. I will quote Richardson directly on this point. Quote, for in seeing the Antichrist on the white horse with a crown and conquering, Muslim scholars see a clear picture of the Mahdi. As mentioned in the earlier chapter on the Mahdi, the earlier Muslim transmitter of Hadith, Kabab al-Abar, is quoted as saying, I find the Mahdi recorded in the books of the prophets. For instance, the book of Revelation says, And I saw, behold, a white horse, he that sat on him, went forth conquering and to conquer. When I first read this, I was skeptical for several reasons. 
The first reason was because there is absolutely nothing that says the Mahdi rides on a white horse in any Hadith or Quran verse that I have found. The second reason is that the person he is supposedly quoting, Kabab al-Amar, wrote at a time when the concept of the Mahdi was not very well developed, certainly nothing like it is today. I found it very unlikely that he would say such a thing, so I went about trying to track down this quote. What I found is a quote from a book by two Egyptian writers, Muhammad ibn Izzat and Muhammad Arif, in their book Al-Mahdi, published in 1997. The actual quote reads like this, quote, Kabab al-Abar said, quote, I find the Mahdi recorded in the books of the prophets. There will be no injustice or oppression in his rule, end quote. This is when the actual quote from Kabab al-Abar stops. Note the quotation marks. The rest of this paragraph is commentary from the authors of this book. It continues, For instance, the book of Revelation says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, he that sat on him, went forth conquering and to conquer. It is clear that this man is the Mahdi who will ride a white horse and judge by the Quran with justice, and with whom will be men with the marks of frustration on their foreheads. Richardson took out the last part of this actual quote from Al-Abar, which said, there will be no injustice or oppression in his rule, and added in its place a quote from the authors of this book. For instance, the book of Revelation says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, he that sat on him, went forth conquering and to conquer. Therefore, he is telling his readers a prominent Islamic scholar believes this, when, in fact, this is the belief of two Egyptian men in 1997, who, in other places in their book, show that they have rather unorthodox views about the end times. If you look up the idea of the Mahdi riding a white horse, you will not find the idea in the Hadith or the Quran. Instead, you will find Christians citing Joel Richardson, who attributes the words of a recent book to the Middle Ages Islamic scholar Kabab al-Abar. Dajjal as the Real Jesus In his book Islamic Antichrist, Joel Richardson claims the Dajjal, the Islamic Antichrist, will in reality be the real return of Jesus. The primary reason he makes this claim is because many Muslims believe the Dajjal will claim to be the Jewish Messiah, just as Jesus will. Richardson doesn't spend very much time trying to point out similarities with the Dajjal and the real Jesus, since there are virtually no similarities. The two characters are very different in their attributes and actions, and the reasons that they are so different is, as we have seen, the Dajjal is based on the biblical and extra-biblical Christian views of the Antichrist. When attempting a comparison of these two figures, Richardson highlights only two items. The first is that the Dajjal is believed to be the Jewish Messiah, like Jesus, and second is that the Dajjal, quote, defends Israel from the Mahdi in the same way that Jesus defends Israel from the Antichrist. I think the second point should be called into question since it takes a bit of imagination to understand the Hadith about the Dajjal's actions as, quote, defending Israel. With that being said, even if we accepted these two premises as true, all this really proves is that the Dajjal is modeled after the early Christian views of the Antichrist and is not a prophecy of the return of Jesus hidden in Islamic traditions. Even if someone doesn't believe the Antichrist will claim to be the Jewish Messiah, no one would disagree that this was the earliest view of the Church, and it was certainly the prominent view at the time the Hadiths were written. In other words, the Islamic Hadith writers believed the Christian Antichrist would claim to be the Jewish Messiah, and that is the reason the Dajjal also claims to be the Jewish Messiah. Similarly, the Bible says the Antichrist will gather the nations to Armageddon in Israel to fight the last battle, 
a battle in which Jesus defeats the Antichrist. Given all we have discovered in this chapter, it is no surprise that the Islamic Hadiths also place their last battle in Israel, where Isa, their version of Jesus, destroys the Dajjal. This is an exact match. This is very simple. The Hadith writers were basing the Dajjal on the Antichrist, not Jesus. I would invite you to consider how irresponsible Joel Richardson's theory about the Dajjal is. He's taking a character who is unambiguously modeled after the Antichrist and telling Christians not just that the Islamic version of events will more or less come to pass, but when they do, they should embrace the Dajjal as their savior. Even if there is the slightest chance that the Antichrist will actually claim to be the Jewish Messiah or Jesus himself, then Richardson's theory is setting up Christians who take his theory seriously for disaster. I will spend a considerable amount of time in the last chapter of this book explaining how much damage this theory could cause. In this section, we have looked at Islamic eschatology in detail. We saw that the writers of the Hadiths based their end times doctrine partly on the Bible and partly on the extra-biblical beliefs of Christians at that time. We have seen that the Islamic Isa is based on Jesus, the Dajjal is based on the Antichrist, and the Mahdi is based on the so-called Last Roman Emperor. We have looked at the theories of Islamic Antichrist proponents like Joel Richardson, who believe the Islamic version of the end times will actually come to pass more or less like the Hadiths say, but that Isa is really the false prophet, the Mahdi, the Antichrist, and the Dajjal, the real Jesus. I hope I have presented enough to show the flawed reasoning behind this theory, and that the simplest explanation, which is that the Hadith writers were simply plagiarizing Christian sources, is the correct one. There is absolutely no reason to expect the Islamic version of the end times to come to pass or to be true in any way. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.